to the word of God. I'm particularly grateful to God that my son has not arrived yet. One of my greatest worries was that en route my wife could call me and tell me we need to go to the hospital because we are expecting a child on Saturday. But he's already due. So uh, I'm very grateful. We prayed with my wife that that boy will stay back until we are done with this ministry. So if after this I'm called, I'm safe. Uh, but uh, let's go to the word of God. Uh, we're talking about the universal church. Our subject this evening is the universal church. You will forgive my voice. I repeat, uh, I think I stay in Kikuyu and uh, we've just been hard hit with cold. So should you hear the tremors, bear with me. That's not how I speak all the time. But uh, our, our subject this evening is the universal church. And uh, I just want to begin by giving us the definition of the universal or the word universal here because it's important. It has several definitions, but in our context, it simply means the general uh, church or the worldwide church of Christ, okay? That's how we are using that word universal. It's the general or the wide, wa worldwide church as, of course, contrasted with the specific and local church units that we have in different places, including here. So uh, the term church itself, which is the subject, of course, of this phrase, I mean, you can either talk about the local church or you can talk about the universal church. But the key phrase for us, or the key word in that phrase for us, the subject of that phrase for us is the word church. And the word church comes from a Greek word, ecclesia, which means those who are called out. The church, are those who are called out, that particular word. And that is those who are called out of the world or who are called out to assemble for a particular function. So the point is, it means called out, either out of the world or called out into a particular environment to attend to a particular function. And as it relates to the saints, it refers to three things in the New Testament. When you look at the New Testament text, the word ecclesia or the word church refers to at least three things in the New Testament. First, ecclesia or the church is a local assembly or gathering of believers. If you read the Bible in the book of Revelation chapter 2 verse 1 or anywhere in the text where the Bible addresses itself to a local community, you will hear like to the angel of the church at Ephesus or the angel to the church in Laodicea or the angel at the, to the church of Sadis. So that is a local unit, a local assembly that gathers in Ephesus or gathers in Philadelphia or gathers in Laodicea. So that is the first way that word is employed to refer to a local assembly or a gathering of believers. But secondly, ecclesia refers to the general or what we are calling in our today's topic the universal church. The universal community of believers. If you look at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22 to 23, the Bible does say, And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him, that is Christ Jesus, the head over everything for the church. 
which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now, the employment of the word church there is with reference to the general assembly, not a specific locality as in Corinth. It is the entire general host of believers worldwide. That is also seen in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 28, when Paul speaks of God giving to the church some to be apostles and teachers, and a number of gifts are lift, listed there. And then in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10 to 11, you see the same, Ephesians 5, 22 to 23, referencing the church to the bride, which we are going to see, speaks of the church as the general worldwide assembly. And lastly, it refers not just to the saints generally or world, gathered all over the world, that is the saints everywhere in the world, but also the saints throughout history, throughout all time. From the very first believer who got born again since time began to the latest, this hour as I speak. The word ecclesia also refers to them. In other words, it includes even those who have departed to be with the Lord. If you look at the book of Hebrews chapter 12 verse 23, the Bible says, but you have come to Mount Zion. And then it also says in the second part, you have come to the general assembly and the church of the firstborn who is registered in heaven and goes on to highlight even the saints of old who died in faith anticipating the grace of God in Christ Jesus who by that were saved by faith in that regard even those men of old who died believing in the hope of salvation and many who have believed since time began and salvation began hitting ground in this world and have gone to be with the Lord, all those people form part of Ecclesia, form part of the church of Christ. So three senses, a local assembly, a general assembly everywhere, and then assembly everywhere throughout all history. So the church of Christ, therefore, is everyone who has ever believed and does believe in Christ for salvation all over the world and throughout time. And the implication of that fact is that the church, and this is very important for us, the church is the one entity, the one project, the one community that never loses members to death. We never lose any member in other words, if someone drops dead today and they belong to the church, we have not lost that person. They are still members of the church. So we are the one unique, perpetual entity that never loses members through death. And that means the church of Christ is an invincible entity. It's an indomitable entity. It cannot be broken. It cannot be destroyed. Because, of course, it has an industrious captain, according to the scriptures. Jesus Christ says, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. The church, from the beginning to the end, is an eternal 
entity. It cannot be, or its progress cannot be compromised by anyone, whether evil or good. Now, Christ is the first to define the church as such, because in the book of Matthew, which I've uh, partly quoted, Matthew 16, 18, 18, and I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. That's the first time, and the first man who does mention, to, mention it in that regard is Jesus Christ himself. And Christ is speaking here with reference to all his people in the world and all the time, and time and space. All his people all over the world are the ones he's referring to when he's saying, I will build my church. And he does that by bringing them home to himself and preserving them eternally through his power. That's how he does build his church. He himself, therefore, is the author of the church. He is the owner of the church. He is the protector of the church. And technically, I mean, clearly in that statement, he is the essence of the church. It's upon the revelation of Christ Jesus that the church is built and holds together. Praise the name of God. And the church, according to the scriptures, in the book of Acts 20, 28, is a blood-bought community. He bought it with his own blood. And in that regard, he owns it. He originates it and he owns it because it is his blood-bought community. The shepherds of the church of God, says the scriptures in Acts 20, 28, which he bought with his own blood. Again, the scripture says in the book of Ephesians chapter 5, Verse 25 to 27 in that regard, referring to husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, meaning that the church is actually a product of Christ's work on the cross. He brought the church to life through the cross. He brought the church into being through his own blood. Praise the name of God. And that's why we are saying he is the author of the church. He is the owner of the church. He is the protector of the church. He is the essence of the church. And because he endures forever, so shall the church of Christ endure. Praise the name of God. And if you are a member of that community, you can shout hallelujah. Because you are an eternal <laughs> being. I mean, there's no quarrel. Hallelujah means we are happy, we are rejoicing, we are charged, we are celebrating our God. Now the church is not therefore, as many have commonly thought, premises where we gather weekly. I mean, I left my home to go to the church. That's not a church. That's just a meeting point. That's not the church. You cannot say my church is in Jaquat or my church is in Nairobi or my church. That's doesn't add up. Church is not a premises where people gather weekly or from time to time. The church is equally not a personal property. Nobody and nobody but Christ can say of the church that this is my church. So you hear, oh, that's the church of Pastor James, or that's the church of Pastor Amos, or that's the church of Bishop so and so. The church is not any man's property. 
it's Christ's own procession. Praise the name of God. And so anyone who will mistakenly think of himself as the owner of the church is completely mistaken. Considering actually that the church has an eternal existence, right? And no man can claim eternity but Christ, Jesus. And for those who will ever know eternity, begun in time, we just sang today, we are for a moment, he's the one who is forever. Therefore, the church is not any man's property. I'm sorry if you are planning to have a church. You won't have one. The owner already has it for himself, and he jealously guards it for his glory and praise. Praise the name of God. And so those of you who are planning to be mighty men and women of God, owning churches, I'm sorry to disappoint you this evening. And the church is not programs either. It's not premises. It's not personal property. It's not programs. It's not the things we gather to do. Notice that Christ is saying, I will build my church. And anything that is referenced to man, therefore, does not meet that threshold. Praise the name of God. Only what is of Christ, that is the church. In Matthew, or rather, before I bring the Matthew scripture, the church... Therefore, it's a community of blood-bought people, as we have said, scattered everywhere throughout history. But let me say something here, that according to Christ, even though the church is made up of all his people gathered everywhere throughout history, Christ anticipates that every of those individual members of his church belong and exists in accountability to a local community. That's very important because there's a danger of using that definition to say, well, me, I belong to the universal church. It is true, but Christ also requires, even as we discuss universal church, to belong to a local church and exist there in an accountability manner. Be accountable to a local community. If you look at Matthew chapter 18, just two chapters after chapter 16, which we have quoted, verse 15 to 18, the context here is a brother who has been wronged by another brother and he's required to exhaust every possible structure to win the brother back. But then in verse 17, Christ says, if that brother refuses to listen to them, that is to the church, or rather to the accountability unit, to the elders and to the people you have approached, Tell it to the church. And in that moment, it's not referring to the universal church. Of course, it will be foolish to imagine that after I've been in a quarrel with Masinde, and then I've gone to a brother, and then I've gone to some people, and then I'd say, now I need to report you to the universal church, right? It doesn't just fly, right? So in that moment, Christ is referring to a local church. Says, and if he refuses to listen even to the church, that's a local community, treat him as you will a pagan or a tax collector. Now, clearly, the instructions there assumes that these two brothers who are in conflict exist in a local community to which they are accountable. And please, may I stress this here, even as we talk about the, the universal church, that we, according to Christ, Christ does not anticipate any of the members of his church to be apart from a local congregation. Because we are living in an age where people are now thinking it's okay just to be a churchless Christian. It's not of Christ. It's contradictory to the will of God and Christ for your success. So much as you identify as a universal believer, you are also a local believer. 
and that's very critical to stress. Well, let's go back to the universal church. Many metaphors, if you look at the scriptures, and let me just take us through metaphors that the Bible employs to reference the church or to describe the church of Christ. The first metaphor we read in the scripture that the church is called the family of God the Father in heaven. It's first described as the family of the Father who is in heaven. And the first person again to bring that to light is Christ Jesus. We read in Matthew chapter 12, verse 49 to 50. He's pointing to his disciples and then he says, after his mother and brothers have come to take him away, Christ points to his disciples and says, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Praise the name of God. And Christ is alluding to the existence of the church as a family. He is the firstborn in that family and he welcomes all who have faith in the Father and who are committed to the will of Father to belong to him. Now notice he's speaking this in the face of his mother. Even though she did well to give birth to him, if she does not conform to the will of the Father, she doesn't belong to the family. It's a very interesting pointer there. If you read 2 Corinthians chapter 6, Verse 17, I might give you a disclaimer here because this is a topical sermon. We just have to run all over the scriptures. Okay? If you're doing expository, I do enjoy expository preaching. But because it's topical, you have to allow me to exhaust the whole length of the scripture to try to define what we are dealing with here. Okay? So sorry if I'm rushing you back and forth. I'm sure the guy on the screen is probably wondering which is the next scripture coming. So 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 17 to 18, therefore, this is the Father speaking, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean and I will receive you, says the Lord. I will be a father to you and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord. So first the son extends an invitation and then the father extends an invitation and in that implies that the church is a family of our Father in heaven. In fact, Ephesians chapter 2 verse 9, Galatians chapter 6 verse 10, all of them think of the church as the household of God and the household of faith respectively. And that is to say that the church, the general assembly, as well as the specific, which is part of the general is the family of our father or of the father who is in heaven. I'm restraining myself from saying our father because that term does not apply to everyone as we are about to realize. Not everyone who has the right to call God father. Only those who belong to his family. It's a very important thing. Now notice that it is only those, and this is what I'm saying, who do the will of the father according to the son, and only those who have renounced the world and now be, that belong to God's family, only those who are submitted to the will of the father and who have shown that by their outward renunciation of everything to do with the 
world, therefore to belong to him, that are members of God's family. And if you are here and you are not submitted to the will of God, and you are here and you have not renounced the world and all its desires, but you are still living for the world, you are not part of the family of God. That's just the scriptures. God is not a father of everyone, but he is a father of his sons and daughters. And these are those whom he has adopted through his beloved and only begotten son, Jesus Christ. And according to his will, he's the only one who has the right to admit them in. Christ is the only begotten, and the rest of us who belong in that family, if we do, are there by virtue of being adopted by the father through the son, okay? And only those adopted sons belong to him. I mean, you only become a member of a family twice, in two ways. Either you, be, you are born in that family or adopted in that family. And only those who are adopted because Christ is the only begotten belong to the Father and have a right to call God their Father. So he's not a father of everyone. And notice also that God is not a grandfather of the believers Sons and daughters, right? Our God is not a grandfather. I mean, I have a son called Esaf. Even though he has a biblical name, I know it's so crystal clear as I watch him every day that this boy does not belong to the kingdom of heaven. He's such a sinner, and every day he only shows up in, with a unique sin. And I'm really trying to manage him and show him the way of God in the hope that the father can call him. But make no mistake, he cannot be a son to the father in heaven by association to me, who is a son in the kingdom. We don't become sons in the kingdom by association, okay? You know, I was just born in Christian home. I grew up in Sunday school. I sang in the choir. I did the catechism. And then, you know, I've just been there. No, you are not. You have never been there in the first place. Because we do not become children in the kingdom of God except by adoption through the beloved. That's very important that we do not serve a grandfather who art in heaven. We serve a father who is in heaven. Praise the name of God. Now it's a great privilege of course to belong to the family of God. To be adopted. It's a privilege. One of the desires we have with my wife after giving birth to the second born is now to adopt more children to our home because we just want to enjoy the privilege of adopting and having children call us parents. It's a beautiful thing to be chosen to belong. And that's what we are. We were chosen to belong, those who are children of God. Praise the name of God. But this also comes with some measure of responsibilities because that choice anticipates that Every son and daughter in that kingdom, if we are to go with the scriptures we have just quoted, should live in the purity of the begotten. Should aim to produce a pure life that is in the likeness of the begotten. Now, boy, he's the only purest of the father. And yet, the demands of belonging to this family require that we become like the son and we become pure like the son. So every child adopted in the family of God should aim for 
purity in the likeness of the son. And not just purity, because this is a family we are talking about should aim for unity in the likeness of the Godhead. And we are going to see that. Two very important things that that metaphor brings to light is that everyone who belongs to the family of God should aim for purity and unity. One in the likeness of the Son and one in the likeness of the unit that exists between the Father and the Son. You don't, you know, when you come to the family of God, there's already unity existing in the Father. So you don't come to bring chaos. Don't become, a, don't become the spoiler in that family. You get them living in unity and you keep up with that unity. And you don't become the bad child because you get a good child there through whom you are adopted. His name is Jesus Christ. And you make it your ambition to become like him. So that's the responsibility that accompanies the privilege of belonging to the family of Christ, whether at a local context or a universal context. Praise the name of God. Very, very important. Now, the church is also called the flock of God the Son. It is the family of God the Father, but it's also the flock of God the Son, who is the shepherd thereof. Now, the Bible says in the book of 1 Peter 5, 1 to 4, Peter speaking to the elders and calling them elders, as, or rather referring to elders as shepherds or under shepherd because he also refers to Christ as the chief shepherd. Verse 2, he says, shepherd the flock of God among you. Verse 4, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. We have there the sheep and we have the chief shepherd. And the sheep here is those who form the church. And they are here referred to as the sheep of the chief shepherd. Now make no mistake, the under shepherds here are only responsible on account and on behalf of the chief shepherd to take care of the flock, but they don't own the flock. There is no pastor, there is no elder to whom any member of the church belongs. Okay, sisi ni washirika wa bishop so and... No, you are not. Nyinyi ni washirika wa Yesu. Nyinyi ni kondo wa mwana kondo wa mungu. Nyinyi si kondo wa mchungaji yote kwa hii Kenya. Kwanesa sifiwe. And again, I'm sorry if you are aiming to have, to own a flock somewhere in this country. To disappoint you and to bring this bad news. You are but an under shepherd on behalf of the chief shepherd. He is the one who owns the sheep. Look, Christ in the book of John chapter 10 is the good shepherd who comes seeking the sheep and when he finds the lost sheep, saves that sheep and after saving that sheep and securing them in his fold, he promises to sustain that sheep eternally in himself. Why? Because the sheep belongs to him and him to the sheep. Praise the name of God. And that means those who have been saved from the world to belong to God belong to his son as the sheep under his fold. Praise the name of God. So we are the family of the father and we are the flock of the son. The, then the church is equally spoken of as the bride of Christ. The church 
is the bride of Christ. And that's a very intimate term. If you're not married, you might not understand this. Only Masinde and a few here probably could understand. Now, Paul portrays her as a betrothed bride, as an engaged bride waiting for her husband to return for his wedding or for wedding when they will together be united. Second Corinthians chapter 11 verse 2, for I am jealous for you with godly jealous, for I have betrothed you to one husband, his name is Jesus, that I may present you as a chest virgin to Christ. I have betrothed you to one husband, not two husbands, one husband. Christ is not polygamous. And we're going to see that. Praise the name of God. So those who bring some other wives to Christ whom do not belong to Christ need to be watched, to watch that. In the name of ecumenism, right? Christ is but the husband of one wife. And then that wife is a chaste virgin anticipating that marriage. For that, this reason, of course, she is to keep herself constantly pure for wedding. She has to guard her wedding gown with dignity, with integrity, with utmost purity as she awaits because the desire of Christ according to Paul is to join himself to a chaste virgin, okay? One who has not been defiled by the world. Praise God. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 33 to 31 to 33, we learn that as a bride, the church was crafted from Christ to become his bride, just as Eve was crafted from Adam, now to belong to him. And therefore, before the fall, Eve was a perfect bride. Just before Satan showed up, she was such a perfect Bride, no wonder the guy burst into Jesus. says, finally, this is now born of thy bone and flesh. He was not speaking to a fallen woman. He was speaking to a holy woman standing before him. And he was thrilled by her. And Christ still intends, therefore, that his blood-bought bride remains pure and blameless till he returns. That's the implication. He intends that you and I, who call ourselves by his name and therefore together belong to him as a bride, keep our garment pure from any form of spot and defilement. Because he's looking forward to get married, but to a chest virgin. But the church is also called and I want to give two metaphors here. It's called the body as well as the building of Christ. If you look at Colossians chapter 1 verse 18, the church is called the body of Christ. And Christ is the head of the body, the church. First Peter chapter 2 verse 4, Christ is the living stone and the saints, all the saints are the living stones. He is the living stone, we are the living stones being built into him to become a spiritual house and priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices 
acceptable to God in Christ Jesus. And in that sense, we are both, or the body of Christ, or the church of Christ, sorry, is both, it's both a body and a building. Now, these two pictures, of course, foresee a very important principle. They foresee unity in diversity. Because both of them speak. One speaks of members, or the body which has individual members, all of which make one body. These diverse members are united as one body, and many living stones are united to form one spiritual edifice. We see that in the book of Romans, chapter 12, verse 4 to 6. Christ, or rather Paul speaking of that. And as we go on, or rather we can go on and on highlighting one after another metaphor. There are still many. The church is part of the ambassador of Christ, the soldiers of Christ, all those things go for us. But these few show what has been said and put well that the inevitable, the inevitable outcome of our union with Christ as believers is our union with the saints as a church, as the church. Praise the name of God. Let me read that again. The inevitable outcome of our union with Christ is our union with the saints in the church. That means the scriptures do not anticipate any churchless believer, both locally and universally, right? And that brings us to the final picture I want to look at, and that's the picture of the church as the fellowship of the Spirit. It's a family of the Father, the flock of the Son, and a number of things attributed to the Son there, and then it's a fellowship of the Spirit. Acts chapter 2 leaves no doubt that the church was born when the Spirit of God was poured out on that day of Pentecost. That was the beginning of the church. The Spirit is therefore responsible for the birth of the church and for the building of the church into a solid, God-glorifying and human-serving entity. Praise the name of God. The Spirit is responsible for her birth. The Spirit is responsible for her building. Now, after regeneration, we are told in the book of Acts chapter 2, verse 42, which is an effect of the Spirit, that the saints devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Something happened, something radical, something visible that was initiated by someone who was invisible, the Holy Spirit of God. Suddenly, all the selfish balls were dropped and men were caught up in very vibrant, dynamic fellowship with one another, pursuing to know God, pursuing to love God and to love each other and to pray and to seek God and to fellowship and to minister grace to one another. Something had just happened in that moment as a result of the pouring out of the spirit. That is when actually the church was born, as we have said. This was fellowship, not in the flesh, but fellowship in the 
spirit, something so spiritual. The word fellowship, in fact, comes from the Greek word koinonia, which, koinonia, yeah, which carries a strong meaning of having intercourse or intimacy. The closest it comes is when it is likened to conjoined twins. Who share life together, born at the same time, joined together, sharers of everything. That is what fellowship means in the biblical context. It's not a loose parting of shoulders here and high, high kind of thing. It's a deep, real, intimate interaction, association, intercourse that knows no bounds, save those within ethics and morality. Praise the name of God. It's a rich fellowship. And what the Spirit did and still does today was to bring the saints, and he does bring the saints into a strong covenant communion with one another, which is called the fellowship of the Spirit. And all these people we are speaking of, some who are long departed, some who are living known and unknown to us, all of them are united as one strong man in Christ Jesus by the Holy Spirit in fellowship divine. Praise the name of God. We are a fellowship of the Spirit. Notice that this union that was happening in the book of Acts and all through the New Testament and the kind of union that is anticipated among believers who share in the Spirit, whether Mjaluom, Kikuyu, whatever tribe, nation, country, boundaries across, all those, that kind of fellowship cannot be manufactured. It's not something you can, you cannot manufacture koinonia. You cannot manufacture that intimacy with a brother unless you are full of the Spirit and he's full of the Spirit of God. And most of you who have experienced this have noticed sometimes when you leave this place to go for missions, you get on the mission ground and you get into an affectionate relationship with someone on the mission field because they're also born again. And you behave as if you knew each other 10 years ago. Nobody can manufacture that. Not your education. You are an educated fella. He's a poor illiterate man all over the other end. In fact, you need an interpreter to speak to each other, but you have such a rich fellowship. It cannot be manufactured, brethren. It's a manifestation of the life of the Spirit within the body of Christ. It has been rightly said that what the blood is to the body, that is what the Spirit is to believers, to the church of Christ. The blood is responsible for running the entire of our system. It's our life. It's our lifeline. If you lose blood, you die, right? And apart from the spirit, you're dead. And apart from the spirit of God, there is no fellowship of believers. So it is important for us to understand what holds us together. It's not our skin colors. It's not our tribes. It's not our education. It's not the fact that we're in Jaquad. For us who are born again, it is because we are members of the body of Christ and fellowship 
we fellowship with the Spirit. We are heirs of someone who has so possessed us individually and yet connected us together that we exist as one people, one army, one soldier. Praise the name of God. Look, we are not like a body. We are a body. It's not saying the church is like a body. No, we are not like a body. We are the body of Christ. We are not like a bride. We are the bride of Christ. We are not like a building. We are the building. We are family members. We belong to the same family. We belong to the same flock. We belong to the same fellowship because we are sharers in the same spirit. Now that means, brethren, any pursuit of independence from the church, whether at a local or from fellowship of believers, is dismemberment of a body. If you try to attempt to disassociate yourself from believers, you are dismembering the body of Christ. And that's an affront against God, an affront against the Son, and an affront against the Spirit. You won't succeed. At best, he will kill you so that you die a member. At worst, he will discipline you while you're still alive in this body and hand you over to the enemy to be tortured so that you save your soul. Because you cannot dismember from the body. You're so connected. And therefore, this violence, outbursts, and conflicts, and jealous, and envies, and rivalry that exists in the body of Christ needs to cease. Please, someone needs to tell me how much time I have because I really get excited sometimes. And I might be carried away. Ten minutes. Five minutes, I'm in trouble. Let me go back to my notes. Are we together? So solid is the unity of the saints in spirit that we are not told to produce unity. Instead, we are told, make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace because it exists. You don't manufacture it. We are only told to promote unity, not to produce unity because by virtue of belonging, you have already been enjoined and you are a member there. And so to pursue this unity is to live inconsistently with who you are. So we are told make every effort to keep it because it is there. He has united you in Christ. He has united you by the Holy Spirit as the Father. And therefore he anticipates that you should pursue that. That's why I think the Bible is very clear. Pursue peace with all men and holiness without which no man will see God. As far as it depends on you, says the scriptures, live at peace with all men. And yet that is not just necessarily for believers. How much more for believers? We need to make every effort. But notice also that this unity was not just a consequence of the presence of the spirit, but also a consequence of sound doctrine. And that's very important. First Peter chapter 1, verse 22. Since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. 
for you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is through the living and enduring word of God. The point is this. The Spirit reveals the truth to us and regenerates us by the truth. And as such, the people who are regenerate by the truth are naturally desirous of the truth. Like newborn babies, they so crave the truth. And that is what Christ is referring to in 1 John 17. Notice Christ says of the disciples in John 17, 6, I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, you gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. And then he now prays in verse 21, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I in you. Now notice, Christ anticipated the Father to work out a spiritual unity among his people. Therefore, he likens that unity to that of him and the Father. But this is against the backdrop of their understanding and accepting of the doctrine that he came with to them. Because when he came from the Father, he was given the word from the Father to give to those who will become the church of the Father. And they received it, accepted it, believed in it, and he was so thrilled that he jumped with excitement. Verse, I mean, chapter 16. So you have believed, because in that moment, the Spirit opened their eyes through the knowledge of Christ, and they confessed faith in Christ Jesus. It was all founded on the work of the Spirit upon the Scriptures. And that's the point I want to stress here. This is the point. That those who will know true unity, and this is now speaking of the unity of the church, those who will know true unity are those who are full of the Spirit and full of the Scriptures. Not just full of the Spirit. Both go hand in hand. For us to continue functioning as a united front, we must be saturated with the Scriptures, we must be saturated with the Spirit of God. Those are the two foundational principles that govern anybody that seeks to be united. And this is the body of Christ. And by the scriptures, I do not mean the head knowledge. No. But those who, through faith, or whose faith, rather, is consistent with the testimony of the scriptures. That is, those who, through the Spirit, have received the revelation of God and, or, and that revelation has of course embodied in the holy scriptures and therefore have become members of this body. Their confidence is founded on the truth of the scriptures. Not on assumptions, okay? They just don't say, I am a child of God. They know and there is an affirmation of the spirit and the scriptures, a testimony of the scriptures. True believers cannot claim to have koinonia, so to say, as we come to this, with those who have not been regenerate and have no spirit of God. 
it is impossible for us to foster unity in the body of Christ in the context where we have sheep working hard to be united with goats. To be a bit blunt, okay? To anticipate that sheep and goat will function as a flock in the body of Christ doesn't work. Praise the name of God. So true unity is not based on accommodation and tolerance, right, together, which has become the vibe of this generation. It's based on the spirit and the scriptures. The kind of unity that comes with those kinds of things that the world gives us cannot fly in the kingdom of God. There is an increasing, for instance, call to put aside the scriptures and accommodate in fellowship those whose lives go against the gospel and the sound doctrine. We should not want that. Praise the name of God. That is not biblical unity. That's not the unity that Christ anticipates for you and I who belong to him. Previously, it was religious unity at the expense of spiritual union and biblical foundation, where the church is being, has been pushed over time to be accommodative. Okay, we can exist with Muslims, we can coexist with which groups? Mormons, we can coexist with Jehovah, witnesses, we can coexist with Christian quote-unquote communities who also confess because why? God is just like a mountain top. You can use any way there. You can either go through Islam, you can go through any other shit. Now look, any religion that does not agree with the scriptures has no business with the blood of Christ. I've told you Christ is not polygamous. And he simply means business. He loves his wife. And he's terribly faithful. Praise the name of God. He doesn't unite himself to those who are not his. Presently, we are now being told to accommodate the LGBTQ community. That's become the latest vibe. And feminism at the expense of the spirit and scriptures. There's a vibe in the world presently pushing Christians. Oh, these people love God. These people, you see the way they are given to humanitarian causes. It doesn't matter. They do not belong to the family of God. We cannot accommodate them on that platform. We can only preach the gospel to them. Again, because the family of God is made up of those who are consistent with the spirit and with the scriptures. It doesn't matter how nice looking, black, white, gray sinners, they are sinners. Sinners, okay? And Christ is married to saints, not to sinners. And so this push to the church, and it's going to come to your CU, it's going to come all over the place, an accommodative, a tolerance vibe, pushing us to seek unity, to collapse doctrine, to collapse the spirit, and to become united, to fight together, to feed the hungry, to unite together, to do very good humanitarian business. It doesn't fly for the kingdom of God. It helps human beings. It doesn't serve God. And so as we bring this to a closure, for true unity to exist, we must be wary of asking questions like, do you believe in God? Because if you ask anybody that question, they will say, I believe. Do you believe in the gospel? Yes, I do. Do you believe in the spirit? We must give up asking those questions. We must ask questions like, which God do you believe in? It's not a question of whether you believe in God or not. Which type of God? Which type of the gospel did you receive when you first 
believed? Which type of spirit did you receive when you first believed? Which type of fellowship are you anticipating? There's no way we can fashion koinonia outside the scriptural truth. Because the spirit operates on the basis of the scriptures. When I feel And there is a lot we can say about that. But in conclusion, if I borrow some two minutes just to conclude this, is that okay? I'm really concluding. What are the marks of the true church? What are the marks of the true church? Let me begin by saying that the church is deemed as true only as its practice is consistent with the apostolic faith. The church which the scriptures recognize as the true church is the church whose practice and life is consistent with that of the apostles. That's what we mean, okay? And the apostles and the churches are known to have been fully devoted to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Their lives, for instance, were defined and driven by the gospel of Jesus Christ, not by a social or some functional political gospel. They were solidly given to the gospel of Jesus Christ. They were defined by the gospel and they were driven by the gospel. If you look at the New Testament, they did not live for themselves. Apostles lived for the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Galatians 2.20, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. 2 Corinthians 5.13 to 21, the love of God compels us. For we conclude that one died, therefore all died, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for those, for him. Praise the name of God. Here are men. And so the first thing I need to say is that a true church is a church that is consistent in practice and life with the apostolic faith. And secondly, as a result of this, the church was then and should now be full of the spirit and the scriptures, as we have just mentioned. The Bible says in Ephesians 5, 18, and do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God, the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. The church must be full of the spirit and of the scriptures to be deemed true. Let the word of God dwell in you richly, says Colossians 3.16. Thirdly, the church then was and should presently be devoted to prayer. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, giving thanks. It's anticipated that those who belong to Christ should be marked by dependence on Christ through prayers. Look. The revelation of God and the manifestation of the Spirit's power for life and service in the church is a product of incessant prayers. When I see people, it's a product of total dependence on God. And lastly, the church was and should now be devoted to churching. Now, what do I mean by that? Go back to my word, Ecclesia. That is to assembling together in fellowship. We must be devoted to churching, to coming together, to meeting together. This whole idea of staying in the home or watching TV in the church, it doesn't work. There's nothing in the Bible called virtual church. It doesn't fly. You cannot koinonia with people virtually. 
nilikuwa na watch church online. There's no church online in the Bible. Wake up, go to the church. Church with fellow believers, gather with fellow believers. Why do I say so? Hebrews chapter 10 verse 24, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting the meeting together of one another, as is the habit of some, especially in this age where we have church online. Wake up. You cannot sing with me if you're watching me. You only sit there and go cooking while you're watching and sitting near your fellowship. You're not fellowshipping. You're cooking, you're eating, you're drinking, you're doing your stuff. And lastly, the church was and must be devoted to the outreach, the Great Commission. Those are part of the true marks of the church. Let me close up at that because I asked for two minutes and I think I've exceeded with one or two minutes. Could we pray? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you this night for speaking to us with regard to the universal church and yet how we uniquely are united to it by the spirit through the truth, oh God. We want to pray that every implication of the things we have shared will be brought to bear to our hearts by your spirit and that those things which are not consistent with your will that have gone out of my mouth will be thrust off and that everything that has come from you for us to meditate and to live by God will be inspired by the spirit and produce obedient in us for the glory and praise of your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you.